The book of John, again this morning, same text as last week, John chapter number 20 in your Bible. John chapter 20, and as soon as you find the text there, stand to your feet with me, and we will read it together, okay? John chapter number 20. The subject today is the reality of Christ, the reality of Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 20, and we begin reading in verse 19, then the same day at evening, that would be Sunday evening of the resurrection. Christ had resurrected the morning of the same day as this occurrence. The same day at evening being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, afraid that they too would be crucified like Jesus had, they had seen him crucified. Jesus came and stood in the midst, and he said to them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his feet. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you. As my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord, but he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were with them. And Thomas was with them, and then came Jesus, that would be the next Sunday, the doors being shut, and he stood in the midst of them. And for the third time in this chapter, he says, Peace be unto you. And then saith he to Thomas, Thomas, reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas, answering, said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And many other signs or miracles truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And you may be seated. <clears throat> so to recap that Passion Weekend, the disciples had fled the scene on Friday when they saw the limp, bloody body of the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross there. When they saw that he was dead, they exited the scene as quickly as they could, as you might expect them to do. They were fearful that the same fate would await them that had uh, happened to their master. And then we skip forward to Sunday morning. 
And Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and suddenly the stone is rolled away, and the tomb is empty. And she actually met the resurrected Christ. You see that in the verses just preceding this. And then she goes and begins to tell the disciples. And so the word begins to spread through the ranks of the disciples, and they inform each other. And they say, we've got to meet together and talk about what is going on. Mary Magdalene says she's seen him. Now, other people, John and Peter, have also said that they have seen evidence that he is, the tomb is empty and Jesus is, is alive. And so they called a meeting. They scheduled a time when they could all get together. And they met together. And uh, we're not told what happened except that suddenly in the midst of that meeting, the Lord Jesus Christ appears. He didn't even have to open the door. He just appeared in there. Now in his, in his glorified body, he seems to have the capacity to be able to even materialize and dematerialize something supernatural that we still don't understand and cannot comprehend. But obviously, the physical barriers of walls and doors were no impediment to him at all. And he, it says he showed them his hands and his side. I want to speak to you today about the reality of Jesus Christ, the reality of Jesus Christ. And I begin with a question to you. The choir just sung, is he worthy? I have another question for you today, and the question is this, is he real? Is Jesus Christ real? Or is Jesus Christ just some fairy tale figure like the tooth fairy? Is Jesus Christ just a part of our subculture as Christians? And we've talked ourselves into this. Sam uh, Harris is one of the famous new and young militant atheists that has captured the attention of a lot of people. And Sam Harris describes God and Jesus Christ as being those imaginary, the, the imaginary invisible man in the sky. Is Jesus Christ just an, imagine, an imaginary invisible man in the sky? Is he just a figment of imagination or is he real? Well, the whole purpose of what we read here is to show us that Jesus Christ is real. And so go in your Bible with me to, again in John chapter 20 and looking in verse 20. Why did it, does it emphasize that Jesus showed unto them his hands and his side? You see that? He showed them his hands and his side. Go to verse number 27. And now he stands before Thomas, and he shows Thomas his hands and his side. Go to chapter 21 and verse number 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise, or in this manner, did he show them himself. Why the constant emphasis in the Bible, over and over and over repetitively, that Jesus is showing himself to the disciples? I submit to you the reason that he did that is he wanted them to see that he was real. He wanted them to see that he was not a ghost, he wanted them to see that they were not hallucinating or imagining 
this. After all, put yourself in their place. These men had seen him hanging dead on the cross. Perhaps they had even off in the shadows somewhere had seen the Lord Jesus, had seen the soldiers as they took down the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and as they carried him away to his tomb. And so suddenly, two days later, he appears in their midst. And what does he do? He shows them his hands and he shows them his side. And it says it over and over. And so I think it was like this. Can you imagine? Here are 11 apostles, the men we most admire and revere other than the Lord himself. Now get the picture. They're in this room. Jesus is standing in front of them. They just saw him crucified. They saw his body taken down. They saw him. They put him in, perhaps even knew that they'd put him in that tomb. And Jesus walks up, and maybe it's John who wrote this. He says, John, look here. And he shows him his hands. You see these nail prints right here? Do you see where they drove that spike through my hand? John, do you want to reach out and touch that? I want you to see you're not dealing with an aberration. You're not dealing with a ghost. I am not just a spirit. My body resurrected. I am real. Peter, look here at my side. And he pulls up his garment, and he shows him a gaping hole in his side. He says, look down here at my ankles, what they did to me. And he goes by those men one at a time. See here? Look here. I want you to see. I'm not an imaginary spirit being. I am the same Lord that they put into that tomb. I am different because I have been glorified, but I am a body. I am flesh and bone, if you will. Turn quickly with me, if you will, to the book of 1 John in your Bible. And this is what made such an impression on John that he wrote in his epistle, 1 John chapter 1. Notice how he begins his book. He says, that which was from the beginning, referring to Jesus, which we have heard. There's a sense, one of our five senses, our ears we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, the second sense, which we have looked upon and which we have ha- our hands have handled of the Word, capital W, Word of life, referring to Jesus Christ, meaning we touched Him. We saw with our senses. We heard with our ears. We touched with our hands. This was not a spirit being. This is not an imaginary figure. This is not a ghost. This is not a figment of imagination. This is the same Jesus Christ that walked the earth for 33 years. This is the real person of Jesus Christ. Turn with me one more time, if you will, back to the book of Luke. And let's look at what Luke says about it. Because these men are making a point that Jesus Christ is real. He is not some ghosty imaginary figure. And in the gospel of Luke, chapter number 24, the very last chapter, he also saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes about it here in Luke chapter 24 and verse number 36. As they thus spoke, Jesus stood in the midst of them, same meeting. He said to them, peace be unto you. And what is their emotional state? They were terrified and affrightened, fearful, terrorized, if you will. They supposed that they had seen a spirit. See, they said, we, he can't be real because we saw his dead body nailed to the cross. 
This can't be a real man. This is a spirit. And Jesus said unto them, Why are you troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Thoughts of doubt. And then again, he says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. And he spreads his hands, and they look at his, they look at his wrists, and they look at his side, and they look at his ankles, and they see the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to them in verse 39, Behold my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Handle me. Feel free to touch me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones as you have seen me. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them again the emphasis. He showed them the scars, his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Do you have any meat? And was he hungry? I don't know. I don't think so. But they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb. <clears throat> and he took it and he did eat before them. And you know why he ate? Because a spirit doesn't eat. Jesus was making a point, an important point, a point for us this morning. And what is the point? That Jesus Christ is absolutely as real as Bill Monroe is standing here this morning. Jesus Christ is real. And all of these scenes were designed for one point, to stamp on their mind the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. And why did he put such an emphasis on it? Because he knew that very soon, soon and very soon, they would be called on to suffer. They would be called on to even die for the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that one day they would hook Thomas up to a team of horses and drag his body through the streets of an Indian city till it was nothing but a mass of quivering flesh and that Thomas would have to die for him. The one who had the most doubt now was going to have to find the reality of Christ. He knew that one day soon Peter would be nailed upside down to a cross and he would die. And so he wanted them to be, understand, this is not a figment of your imagination. This is real. This is the real deal. I am the same Jesus that you associated with, walked with, ate with, fellowship, talked with for three and a half years. I was dead, but I'm not dead anymore. I am alive, and I am real. Now look in John, go back there to the text, and I won't move you around so much again, but I want you to see this is the heart of what I want to say to you today. And in verse 29 of John 19, you know, Thomas has expressed his doubts. Unless I, put, unless I touch him, I won't believe, he says. He makes that categorical statement. And then in chapter number 20, and in verse number 29 of the book of John, Look what Jesus said to him, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. Well, blessed are they that have not seen me and still believe. How many of you have ever seen Jesus Christ physically? I don't think you have. You have not seen Jesus physically. But there's a blessing on us because how many of you believe? 
You have not seen him, but you still believe. Well, what's the basis of that? Are we just naive, simple people as these intellectuals in our country today trying to tear down Christianity? Are we just a bunch of naive simpletons who don't have enough intellectual capacity and horsepower that we can really understand life? Are we in this imaginary dream state? Do we believe things because we want to believe them? Or is there some factual basis for our belief that Jesus Christ is real? I tell you, there's plenty of evidence if you're willing to believe. And what is the evidence? Well, the most important evidence is right here in this book. This book itself is evident. This book speaks about Jesus Christ beginning in Genesis chapter 3 and going all the way through to the very last page where he says, Behold, I'm going to come back to the earth. This book is a book that has been proven true by hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. It's been proven true by the spate of the archaeologist who has never dug up one artifact in all the world that contradicted the record of the Scripture. This book is true because of the history, the accuracy of ancient history. We compare it to secular ancient history, and we compare what the Bible says, and we find out this is a factual book. This book is true because we've experienced the truth and the reality and the power of it in our own lives. This book is true, and every page of this book points to Jesus Christ in one way or another. So we have the evidence of the Bible. We have the eyewitness evidence, the people who actually saw him after he resurrected from the grave. Why would you doubt these eyewitnesses? They're the apostles who were willing to seal their testimony with their own blood and their own death. Why would you doubt a man who was willing to die for what he says he believes? And secondly, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that there were over 500 men meeting together at one time and one place, and they met with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he stood and he taught them. Why would you doubt 500 Credible witnesses. How, how does the atheist, the agnostic, the unbeliever, the secularist today, how do you just write off 500 people's testimony and then all the testimony of all the people that were getting saved during those days that are not even in re- recorded in the Bible? There's the witness of the Bible. There's the witness of the eyewitnesses. There are the references to Jesus Christ in secular writers, non-Christian writers of the day. There's at least 10 non-Christian writers who talked about this prophet of Galilee and Nazareth, his name being Jesus Christ. One of them, of course, the most famous is the the Jewish historian Josephus. And he writes long passages about this prophet who appeared out of Nazareth in Galilee, did these miracles and did these wonderful things. Why would you doubt 10 secular writers who said Jesus Christ was real. And then why would you doubt the messengers themselves, that these 11 men spread out across the globe, and they were willing to die for the cause of Christ? Here's a wonderful quote that I picked up from some unknown source. I don't know where I got it. But quote, the credibility of the message of early Christianity cannot be separated from the lives of those who proclaimed it, end of quote. In other words, there was a consistency between what these men preached, the changes in their life, and the reality of Jesus Christ. And so that itself is evidence. And lastly, fifthly, the evidence of Jesus Christ fulfilled through the ancient prophecies. 
hundreds of prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ, given hundreds of years before he was ever born. Micah talks about he would be born in little Bethlehem. Others talk about him riding into the city on the foal of an ass. Others speak about the crucifixion and give details of the crucifixion. Isaiah chapter 53, he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And then it describes in the following verses the crucifixion scene in detail. Why would you not believe that this one man was the only man who met the requirements and the qualifications of scores of prophecies that were fulfilled in his day? Last week, we showed you on Easter Sunday a brief video of Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is a lawyer. He is a prominent lawyer. He was a prominent lawyer in Chicago, a brilliant man. He then became an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune, investigating murder cases and so on in that area. And then he told you the story of how his wife came to Christ, his wife an agnostic, he an atheist. And he began to see such positive changes in her life. And it was a wonderful little video. Then he talks about his own journey to Christ. And here's what he said. One, I took a step of faith in the direction that the evidence was pointing. Lee Strobel spent months investigating the reality and the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. Was there a man named Jesus? Is he who the Bible says he was? Is there any possibility that this person lived on the earth? And he moved from atheism to become a believer in Jesus Christ. Now he's written all these books. Go to any Christian bookstore and you can see books like The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, and all these different books that Lee Strobel has now written. I took a step of faith in the direction the evidence was pointing. I know Jesus Christ is real. Over time, my character, my values, my priorities begin to change for good. So I ask you the question I began with. Is Jesus Christ real? Or is he the invisible imaginary man in the sky that we're just a bunch of people sitting here trying to convince ourselves of some hope that we have? Isn't it interesting that he's the only person in history that doubt is cast on them continually? Did you ever hear anybody say, I don't think Muhammad ever existed? You've never even heard that. You ever heard somebody get on national television and say, you know, this whole thing about Buddha, that's just imaginary stuff. But they'll do it over and over and over and over and over about Jesus Christ. Is that not passingly strange that of all the people that ever lived, the one person we want to deny is the one person who qualified to be the Son of God? There's something nefarious about that, isn't there? There's something satanic about that kind of spiritual blindness that people don't believe because they don't want to believe because if you believe, it's going to make a difference in your life. There are going to be some changes. So, my conclusion is that a knowledge of the reality of Christ is the source of all joy and peace and power for a Christian. Look in verse number 20. 
What a key, wonderful verse. I've preached a lot to you recently about Christian joy. I return to that theme. I don't think it can be overdone. It says, then were they glad when, key words, then and when. Then were they glad when they saw the Lord, that Jesus was the source of their joy. The word glad there means joyful. In fact, I looked it up, and the exact definition of that word in the original language was calmly happy and joyful. Calmly happy, not goofy happy, not ha, 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 ha stuff that's superficial, but a deep-seated sense of joy and calmness and happiness. That's the joy is speaking of there. Let me give you a definition of joy. Joy is a peaceful, calm delight in all life circumstances. Now, you might want to write that down. You might need that one day. What is joy? It's not hilarity. It's not laughing like you do at a comedian or a joke. It is a peaceful, calm delight that's bubbles up from within us in all of life's circumstances. That means that I could be grieving for the loss of a loved one, but still have joy. That means that I could be disappointed, but I could still have joy. Jesus is the source of joy, and joy is that peaceful, calm delight in all of life's circumstances. I want you to notice what that verse doesn't say and mark it with me. Note here, it doesn't say when they saw themselves, they were happy. I'm talking to some people today, no doubt. You keep looking down inside trying to find the basis for joy, the source of joy. You're never going to find it. You're going to find despair. Do you know what Paul said when he looked down inside? Listen to me real carefully. The greatest Christian other than Jesus that ever lived, the Apostle Paul, you know what he said? He looked down inside one day, and he said, Oh, wretched man that I am. And if you look down inside, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find wretchedness. You're going to end up in despair. You're not going to find hope inside. If you look at other people, the verse doesn't say when they saw each other. My soul, I have had to learn that through my life, that if I get my eyes on people, I would have quit 49 and a half years ago. I can tell you people will disappoint you. They will discourage you. You get your eyes on the rest of the church members, and you'll be out of here pretty soon because you'll find somebody who will disappoint you, I promise you. Oh, what a painful lesson. It hurts. But it's the truth, isn't it? We've got to learn to deal with reality. Here's the thing. Those disciples are sitting there, and you know what? There's an empty chair in that room. There's already an empty chair in that room. Where is Judas? Paul wrote, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Had Paul had his eyes on Demas, he would have been very discouraged in that prison. He understood the pull of the world, and he did not despair, and he was not overwhelmed with disappointment, discouragement, 
I'm sure he was, I'm sure it hurt him. It bothered him. He had invested deeply in Demas. Demas hath forsaken me. Don't get your eyes on people. People will come to me sometimes and say, well, where's so-and-so? I never see him at church anymore. Well, they quit. Well, why'd they quit? I don't know. You ask them. But I'm not going to focus on them too much or I'll be out of here. Right? And so that's between them and the Lord. They'll have to deal with that. But you know what? You keep your eyes upon Jesus. It doesn't say when they saw themselves, they weren't looking down inside. It doesn't say when they saw each other. It doesn't say when they saw the circumstances. I heard somebody say the other day, and I really like this. You'll hear this a thousand times in the future, I'll bet. It said, things aren't falling apart. They're falling into place. (laughs) Man, I like that. The Lord is in control, isn't he? And we look around the world and we say, man, so everything's falling apart. No, it isn't. They're falling into place. The Lord knows what he's doing, and so don't, don't look at the circumstances or you'll be disheartened. Man, listen to me. I'm on to something here in my preaching. There's a whole world of Christians out there today. We are such bad advertisements for the cause of Jesus Christ because we don't have the joy of the Lord in our life. Every time a little bump this big comes along and we trip over it and we fall on our faces and then we lay there in the slew of despond. Oh, listen to me, Christian. That's not the way the Lord wanted us to live. He wants us to have the joy of the Lord in our life. The joy of the Lord. The Lord, I'll tell you one thing, the world will take the joy out of you. I'm convinced the evangelical Christianity today is weak and sickly, and anemic, and impotent, because the world, the attractiveness of the world around us has sucked the joy out of our Christian living. And when the joy goes, nobody wants what we have. Mr. Unsaved Woman, or Mr. Unsaved Man, or Unsaved Woman, I want to tell you about Jesus. And they look at us and say, why do I want to listen to you? He about ruined you, it looks like. And, but when our lives are full of joy, we're good advertisements for the kingdom, aren't we? The cause of Christ is so wonderful, so winsome, so attractive. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Man, those disciples saw the Lord standing in the middle of that room. Do you think they were caring about what the score was of the chariot races down at the Colosseum? Do you think they were impressed by Romulus over in Rome making a billion dollars? I doubt it. You know what? They got their eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that was such an overwhelming, powerful thing in their lives. That was all that mattered to them at that point. The things of the world had grown strangely dim to them. But not only, let me go hurriedly here, is Jesus the source of true joy, but look in verse number 19. Jesus is the source of peace. 
Three times in this passage, he says, peace be unto you, peace be unto you, peace be unto you. That was his greeting. Paul later writes, he says, being justified by faith. Justified is when we trust in Christ and he declares us forgiven of our sins. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God. You know, until you have come to Christ, you lay your head on your pillow and you think about your sins. What would happen if I died? What would happen if I met the Lord? I'm not ready to meet him. But once you have been saved, justified, as Romans said, we have peace. The Lord accepts me. He accepts me through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And so I have peace with God. There's no hostility. I don't fear his judgment anymore. I know he's a just God, and I know that he will judge every sin, but I know that he's already judged my sin at the cross of Christ because I put my faith in him. Jesus is the source of joy. Jesus is the source of peace. Look in verse number 22, and Jesus is the source of power. He breathed on them, and he said, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit. And that day, the Holy Spirit took up his abode in the apostles. The first time the Holy Spirit ever came was not in the book of Acts at Pentecost, as you often hear people say. It was in John 20. And Jesus breathed on them, and he gave them the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Hear me. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit is always associated with energy with power, with activity. Every time you see the Holy Spirit mentioned in the Bible, you'll see activity, not passivity. You'll see people energized, empowered, and doing things for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of our power. He is the engine that energizes every single Christian. And he's the source of our fr- the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Say it with me. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Stop. How loud did you say that? He is the, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is joy. It just happens. It pro- it's produced by the Spirit's presence in my life. And when I am Filled with his spirit, I cannot help but have the joy of the Lord in my life. So Jesus is the source of joy, verse 20. Jesus is the source of peace, verse 19. Jesus is the source of power, the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 22. Now, one more thing. Listen. Jesus is the attract, or pardon me, joy is the attracting power of our faith. I touched on this, but let me revisit it for a moment. Joy is the attract, the attracting power of our faith. In Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10, there's a verse that's familiar to all of you, and the verse is this, the joy of the Lord is our, say it again, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Have you ever noticed even that when you get sad and depressed and melancholy and down, 
You don't feel like doing anything. It drains your energy away. Your strength is gone. Have you ever had a bad day? You're in a bad mood and you just don't, what do you say? I just don't feel like doing anything. Well, sure you don't. Because when you lose your joy, you lose your strength. And that's true in the emotional world just as much as it's true in the spiritual and physical world. And you show me a depressed person, all the biblical counseling materials talk about when people get depressed, you know what they do? They want to go to bed. They want to sleep all the time. There's even a physical manifestation of it. But when they are filled with joy, oh, there's strength that flows from that. And so when I encourage you and exhort you and teach you on having the joy of the Lord. This, this encompasses every part of our life, doesn't it, folks? It's not just being spiritually strong. It's being strong emotionally and physically. Joy is the attracting power of our faith. We don't have much persecution in America. Whatever we have is very soft at this point. But I do believe it's coming. I believe there are signs all over the place, and I'll talk about that tonight in the message, of a coming opposition like we have not seen in the history of the country. But here's the question. Why is it that in Nigeria today, why is it today in China, why is it today in Pakistan, why is it today in some places in Latin America that Christianity is growing by thousands of people every day? I can tell you one factor, not the only one, that factor is persecution, that people are being persecuted in those places. The, if you read the mainstream media in America, you don't know that there are thousands of our brothers and sisters that have been killed already in Nigeria. Whole sections of the of, uh, whole villages have been wiped out by Boko Haram terrorists over there. And yet, in the midst of that suffering, those people have shown joy. I preached to you just recently about the Chinese preacher that they came and closed his church and locked the people up. And he exhorts his people. He sends them a letter through an underground source. And what does he say? Above everything else, I want you to keep your joy. Because when people are suffering, they're not supposed to be joyful. And when people have joy in suffering, the world sits up and takes notice. And the world says, wait a minute, nothing is working out for these people, and yet they have victory in their life. And it makes Christianity winsome and attractive. And people come to Christ when they see the joy of the Lord in the lives of God's people. That's why I say it's so easy for us to be bad advertisements for the faith. Let me read to you something, and then I'll close. But give me your good attention. Back in the third century, there was a man named Cyprian. Cyprian was, he lived in Carthage in North Africa. Cyprian came from the wealthy, the privileged class. He was trained to be a lawyer. And then after his training there, he became a professor at the University of Carthage back 300 years after Christ lived. He ended up dying as a martyr for the Christian faith. 
And before his martyrdom, he was the bishop of the church at Carthage, an outstanding, godly Christian man. Cyprian had a friend named Donatus, and Donatus was a pagan. And Cyprian writes his dear friend Donatus shortly before his death, and here's what he said, quote, Donatus, this is a cheerful world as I see it here from my garden under the shade of my vine. Now, you had to be wealthy to own a garden and a vine in those days, but he's, can you picture him? They didn't have air conditioning. He's sitting out in the evening in the cool of the day. The vines are growing over his head. He's sitting in his garden. And he's looking out. This is a cheerful world as I see it from my garden under the shade of my vine. But if I could ascend a high mountain and look out over the whole world, you know well what I would see. Thieves on the highways, pirates on the sea, armies fighting, cities burning, men being murdered in our amphitheaters to please the applauding crowds. I would see selfishness and cruelty and misery and despair under almost every roof. Donatus, it is a sad world, but I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any of the pleasures of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They have overcome the world. These people, Donatists, are called Christians, and I am now one of them, end of quote. He saw in the faces of the Christian people a reality that attracted him with his wealth and his influence to come to Jesus Christ and a few years later to die for the Savior question, is Jesus real to you enough today that you would be willing to sacrifice or suffer for him? And is Christian joy being demonstrated in our lives? A peaceful, calm delight in all the circumstances? I wish I could say that it always was in mine, but it's not. But I can tell you I've experienced enough of it to know this. It is a real thing, and it's worth everything. Stand to your feet with me with your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed.